The church say amen. amen. The church say amen again. Uh, it's a privilege to be in the house of the Lord. Appreciate my brother Peter here on the front row, third row rather. Um, how you all doing? Doing good? Amen. Amen. Um, so I am not the BD, um, if uh, you were wondering. Uh, my name is Stephen Harris. I'm a member here. Um, bride uh, over there is Sonny, son named Jude. Uh, just a privilege to come and share before us in God's word. I don't want to take up too much of our time. We will be in Psalm 56 this morning. Psalm 56. If you do not have a Bible, there are people coming through the aisles with the word. Look at all that word. Uh, so just raise your hand if you don't have a Bible. Uh, I think the policy is if you don't own one, like if you don't have a Bible, you are free to keep that, take that home with you, and then bring it back. Don't not bring the Bible back so you can get another one, but take that one home with you. It is ARC's gift to you. The 56th Psalm, uh, can someone help me out on what page it is in the Pew Bibles? We have some discrepancies. 476. Amen. 56 Psalm is found in, on page 476 uh, in the Pew Bibles. I'm going to read this psalm in its entirety, um, and then we'll pray once more. When you have it, say amen. Need a minute? Say wait a minute. Okay. All right, the 56th Psalm. And it reads, Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me all day long. An attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? All day long they injure my cause. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They stir up strife. They lurk. They watch my steps as they have waited for my life. For their crime will they escape? In wrath, cast down the peoples, O God. You have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know that God is for me. In God whose word I praise, and the Lord whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? I must perform my vows to you, O God. I will render thank offerings to you, for you have delivered my soul from death. Yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. Such is the reading of the word of God. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we do thank you for uh, the privilege of your word. And Father, we ask now that by the aiding presence and power of your spirit, you would help us to understand, uh, to receive what it is that you would have for us to know about you and about us and about what you are doing in our lives and in this world and what is yet to come. Father, we pray that you would bless us in this time. Father, may you get all the glory and may your people be blessed both now and forever. And we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. For the time that is ours to share, I want to lift from this passage, this thought, God's song trusting in trial. God's song, trusting in trial. It is that great German theologian and martyr, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who once commented in his reflection on the book of Psalms, quote, whenever the Psalter is abandoned, an incomparable treasure is lost to the Christian church. With its recovery will come unexpected power. Perhaps not true of the critical mass of image bearers who sit in this room. I am yet convinced that there tends to be somewhat of a lowered expectation 
of revelation when we approach the book of Psalms. In our circles of evangelicalism, we prize robustness of theology. There's a word for you, robustness. We prize robustness of theology. We prefer to mine the doctrinal depths of books like Romans or Galatians or Ephesians or even Colossians as we're walking through, and that's fine to do. But we often leave the book of Psalms to the the sentimental among us, to those who are emotional and need somewhere to go to find a place where they can rest. But I want to submit to you that the Psalter is actually where the comprehended theology of a Romans or a Colossians meets the everydayness of our lived experiences in a fallen and sinful world. I'll say that again. It's where the comprehended theology that we learn in Romans and Colossians and Galatians meets the everydayness of our lived experience. Only in the Psalms do you get the raw emotional footage of saints who essentially express things like this. It's like, okay, uh, God, um, this thing right here that I'm going through or this person that I have to deal with, this going to stop. You just get the raw emotional play-by-play of saints trying to deal with being faithful in this life. In the Psalter, you get expressions that essentially say things like, like this. Okay, um, Okay, well, I see they, they done got a, a house and they got a new car. They just, they just making it rain. They ain't even trying to live right, though. What's up with that? You see people in the Psalms say stuff like that. And what I appreciate about the Psalms is that in reflecting that kind of experience, this is what I like to think of as true biblical spirituality. We often think of biblical spirituality as not thinking thoughts like that, not having those kinds of perspectives. But biblical spirituality is actually trying to make sure that as you live Monday through Saturday, that your vertical perspective is actually played out in your horizontal life, right? It's where you go to God and you say, God, okay, I understand some things about you, but things on this level ain't looking right. Help me. The Psalter expresses experiences that we have that we experience Monday through Saturday, but perhaps we don't want people to know we actually think about when we come to church on Sunday. Only in the Psalms do you get the full gamut of the ebbs and flows of life laid bare in Hebrew poetry, in song, expressing, as it were, the depths of a saint's soul. This biblical spirituality that I I spoke of is something that we're going to see here in this particular psalm. Psalter is written by David. At a particular time in his life, the conventionally understood background of this psalm comes from the book of 1 Samuel. So if you just go back through your Old Testament imagination for a moment. So in the book of 1 Samuel, we have something interesting. That the people of God that he is forming and fashioning for himself whom he has called out of bondage, whom he has rescued by his mighty hand. He's given them himself. They are his people. Uh, He is their God. He's given them a law. He's protected them. He's sustained them. He's provided for them. The people of Israel are rolling with the one true and living God. So all of their enemies are, are becoming aware of this, and they are protected by this God. But there comes a point in the history of this people And in 1 Samuel chapter 10, what they proclaim to God via Judge Samuel, God, I know that you've been protecting us and you've been providing for us and you've been sustaining us, but we actually want a king like all the other nations. Think about that for a second. Like, God, I know you brought us out and you cool and all, but we want a, a king that we can see. And so in 1 Samuel 10, they pick this brother named Saul. Saul is like the Idris Elba of the children of Israel. Okay, come back, come back, come back. Just have to drop that out there. The text literally says that there was no one in all of Israel who was more handsome than Saul. That brother must have been good looking or else there must have been a lot of ugly brothers. One of the two. 
Saul is tall. Saul may be dark. He's handsome. But we run into the reality really quickly that Saul is also sinful. And in 1 Samuel 15, he disobeys a direct command of God. And the, the kingdom, the, the, the kingship is ripped from his hands. And in 1 Samuel chapter 16, David is anointed. David is the youngest son of Jesse. He's a runt. He's not tall. He's not strong. But God chooses David to anoint David as the next king. And in 1 Samuel 17, that as the Israelites are now up against the Philistines again, it's David who runs out and meets this nine-feeder from the city-state of Gath, Goliath of Gath in 1 Samuel chapter 17. And, Daniel, and David, rather, defeats Goliath. David defeats Goliath in 1 Samuel 17, and in 1 Samuel chapters 18 and 19, Saul is getting a little jealous. And what's spurring Saul's jealousy along is the sisters. The sisters that made up a little song. Goes a little something like, like to hear it, here it go. (laughs) This is literally what they sing. Saul has slain his thousands. But oh, David has slain his tens of thousands. That will mess with anybody. If that's just what is on the radio every day, right? As you drive into work. So Saul's heart towards David turns. He begins to hate David. He pursues David. He's after David's life. And in 1 Samuel chapter 21, David, as he is now fleeing for his life from Saul and all of the men whom Saul has commissioned to capture David and kill him, David comes up with this thought in his imagination. He says, okay, uh, here's what I can do. He, he winds up at this priest's house, and uh, he doesn't tell this priest what's going on, so he essentially lies to the priest. Uh, but, it, but, but the priest says, okay, uh, before you leave, do you have a weapon? And Daniel says, no, I don't got a weapon. And the priest says, um, well, I actually have the sword of Goliath just lying here, like the, the dude you killed. I have his sword. Why don't you take it? And David's like, okay, let me look at that. That's a nice sword. Go ahead and give me that. But look at, listen to what he does with the sword. He takes Goliath's sword and he flees to Gath. This is the hometown of Goliath. I don't know why David decides to do this, but he goes to the, to the central state of the Philistines in Gath with Goliath's sword. And for some reason, he doesn't expect that they're going to recognize him. And they do recognize him. They're like, aren't you, David? Isn't that Goliath's sword? So here's what David does. He pretends like he's insane. That hopefully the recognition that they have had, they would double back on it. And we're going, oh, maybe you're not David because you're, you're, you're drooling from your mouth. You're insane. And so the Philistines capture him and take him away. David writes Psalm 56 after he is captured in Gath, running from Saul, now surrounded by Philistines, all because his life is in danger. This is the context of the 56th Psalm. And what what I appreciate and love about this Psalm is that David writes this as a prayerful reflection to God that eventually becomes part of the hymn book of Israel. We learn something about the importance and blessing of divine protection and faith in the midst of trial and in the face of fear. This psalm is divided or can be divided in a number of ways. This is how I'm going to break it up and walk through it. The first three verses constitute one section, and then verses five through nine constitute another section. And then those two sections, one through three and five through nine, are followed by a refrain. So the refrain is first in verse four at the end of section one through three, And the refrain is repeated, which is why it's called a refrain, after verse 9, namely verse 10 and 11, after the 5 through 9 section. So you have a section, refrain, section, refrain, and then a conclusion with the last two verses. Let's look at what the text says. Look at verses 1 and 2 again. David says, as he is surrounded by Philistines, running from Saul and his men, not knowing what the Philistines are going to do to him, He says, be gracious to me, O God, 
for man tramples on me. Now, this might seem too obvious to state, but I love the way that David begins this psalm, and I think it's a lesson for all of us. David is in trouble. David's got some problems. People are running after him. People are desiring to take his life. He doesn't know what his current circumstance or predicament is going to end up to be. But as David is reflecting on his situation, he begins with a vertical perspective. David acknowledges that there one is a God, And that this God is able to intervene into his current situation. As I reflected on this psalm, I just have to thank God for the the privilege of knowing him. Can you imagine going through the things that you go through or the things that you've been through without understanding who God is? Can you imagine having had to face those things without knowing God or without having God knowing you in his son, Jesus Christ? What would that be like? But David begins this reflection stating that there is a God and he is asking this God to be gracious, to be merciful toward him. Despite the particular trial, test, trouble, or trauma that is being discussed, the psalmist recognizes there is a God that can be appealed to because this God can do something about it. That's the key. This God can do something about it. And one of the hardest things to remember when you're going through a trial or a test, those of us who've been professed to know God and be known by him, is to believe and truly know that God can do something about it and is doing something about it. David has Saul and his men after him and is now surrounded by Philistines. I see why he acted like he was crazy. He's under nonstop duress. Look at what verse 2, my enemies trample on me all day long. They attack me proudly. Perhaps you know what that feels like to be under constant duress. Perhaps it's a problem in your family or on your job. It's some kind of physical malady, as our brother Jaheel prayed, that you've been dealing with for some time. It's a burdensome responsibility that you might have. It could be a loved one or a student loan. They keep calling me God. Amen. Okay, nobody wants to admit that. Pray for me, my wife and I then. We are under the burden of some student loans. Amen. But you know what it feels like to have the constant pressure of a problem. No matter how that problem is perceived by other people, whether it be big or small, it's real to you. And that's often the hardest thing to go through as you're going through a problem to not have other people understand and take serious what you're going through because they're not going through it. I said, well, you know, how are you doing? You're like, you know, it's been pretty hard and, you know, this is what it's like. And they, they're like, that's it? <laughs> what you mean that's it? Only you know like you know what your problem is. But not only do you know, God knows. And David recognized that as he was going through what he was going through, he wasn't the only one who was watching, but there was an onlooking Lord who could do something about his problem. Look at verse 3. He doesn't take too much time focusing on the particulars of his problem, though, does he? He lays it out. He states what it is. He's honest about it. You can see the emotion in the first two verses about how he feels about what he's going through. But then he cuts into that. With this verse, when I'm afraid, I put my trust in you. With trials of any kind comes the production of fear. But the trial itself does not produce the fear. The fear is an internal reality that gains its strength from a lack or an absence of faith. So it's not the external thing that is actually producing the fear. The fear is coming from the inside of you. But that fear gains its strength. It gains its steam from the absence of faith and trust that already exists in you in response to whatever that thing is. So David, recognizing this, he has to make a decisive move and say, when I see that fear approaching, I make a decision to put my trust in God. We see here then that faith is the antidote to fear. Faith in God 
is the antidote to fear. So there's a, a social media video going around, and uh, it's Will Smith talking about jumping out of an airplane. Who, who's seen that video? Okay, I'm like four of y'all, so I might just skip right over this. But Will Smith is talking about skydiving. He was in Dubai, and it's got like 100 million plus views, and he's talking about fear and how he dealt with this fear. But he makes this statement at the end of the video, and I'm not getting on Will. I hit some, some of y'all faces, don't be talking about Will. I'm not talking about Will. I just want to point this point right here. He says at the end of the video, everything that you want, all of the good things in life are on the other side of fear. And the whole point of his four or five minutes of talking is that he wants you to understand, because it's something that he felt like he's understood, is that all you have to do is get yourself to the other side of fear or over the hurdle of fear, and then you will enjoy all that life has to offer. I said, that's, that's great. Okay, cool. I'm always trying to be charitable. It's like, mm, no, yes, maybe. But the thing about it is you can't get yourself on the other side of fear. If you look for the antidote to fear in yourself, if you try to muster up the courage, if you try to muster up the plans, the strategy, you will fail at trying to get yourself on the other side of fear. David recognizes that the way to cross over from fear is to put his faith and trust in God. And doesn't that reflect on what we know to be spiritually true for those of us who profess to be Christians, that there is no way, even as I recognize that I am in danger, as it were, that my own sin has caused separation between me and God, I can't not, in and of my own strength, bridge that gap, can I? God has opened your eyes to allow you to see that you are the problem, but yet the antidote, the answer to the problem doesn't come from you. You need God to be all right with God. Only God can make you right with himself. In the same way, only God can help you cross over that bridge of fear. Look at the refrain in verse 4. I want to point out one thing in this iteration of it, then I want to mention something in the next iteration of it in 10 through 11. But look at what he says. I'll read all of it, but I want to hone in on this one thing. And God whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? Check that statement out. We just got to pause right there for a moment. He says, what can, what, can flesh, what can flesh do to me? Now, it's a question, but it's tied to the phrase that precedes it. Look there again in verse 4. Uh, he says, what can flesh do to me? But right before that, he makes the declarative statement, I shall not be afraid. So you almost see two pairs here in that verse. You have God and trust, or you're going to go with fear and flesh. David sees two options here. Either I'm going to go with God and therefore place my trust in him, or I'm going to let fear consume me. And when that fear consumes me, I'm going to end up being afraid of what man can do to me. So David deciding to go with God and putting his trust in God makes the conclusion. It's a question, but it's really a statement that assumes an answer. What can flesh do to me? Answer being nothing. Now, here's my problem. I think we say that a little too quickly. When I was growing up in church, you know, we would sing songs. and I was young, and these probably weren't the exact words, but they would come off a little like this. You can break my neck, but you can't break my soul. And I'd be like, wait a minute. And you get what they're saying, right? But no one in that choir stand was actually expecting their neck to be broke. They were going to go to Red Lobster afterwards and eat Cheddar Bay Biscuits. And my problem is, as I try to grow up in the faith, I want to actually apprehend that truth so it can be real when I say it. And that's the challenge. You walk around and say, what can flesh do to me? Well, Jesus picks this up in the Gospels, and he actually makes this statement to the apostles that he's sending out. He says, don't fear the one who can just destroy the body. But he says, fear the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. 
So Jesus, I apprehend that truth. I understand that, that, that you are the one who has control over both. And that if I spend my life being afraid of what man can do to my flesh, then I might, might miss what, what you have for my soul. I get that. But that means I have to have a pretty loose grip on this life, doesn't it? If that's actually going to be true in my life. That David, as, now David, as he says this question, as, which is a statement, what can man do to me? Nothing. David has had to process through because the Philistines are all around him. Saul is chasing him. He understands what could happen to his flesh. But he has made a different valuation that regardless of what happens to his flesh, they can't do something ultimately to his soul. And so that reduces to a statement that says they ain't got no power. That's, that's something we aspire to, brothers and sisters. This is something that we vacillate in and out of. Some days you're feeling bold in the Lord. Some days you're like, okay, it's a weekday today. They could actually do a lot of things to my flesh, actually. But what does it look like to not be concerned about whatever happens to me in this trial, because I know that someone not only owns my body, but owns my soul and has purchased my soul. David says, what can, what can flesh do to me? Look at verses 5 to 9 here. Now, what's interesting is David has gone through walking through what his trial is. We saw that in the first couple of verses. Then he cuts that. He stops thinking about that. And he turns to trust in God. And then you get that refrain about trusting in God and what can man do to me. But then in verse 5, he does what? He goes right back into the trial, doesn't he? I'm actually encouraged by that because I do the same thing. And so do you. You'll be in something, you'll process through, you'll be honest with God, you'll be honest with about 10 to 15 other people more than you should be, you'll tell them what's going on, and then you'll finally turn to God, you'll put it in God's hands, pray about it, cool. Day or two might pass, maybe just 15 minutes, and you're reflecting again what the reality of the trial is. This is this is a natural response. But if you remember from 1 Corinthians chapter 2, those of us who have been redeemed with the Holy Spirit dwelling on the inside of us, we're not just called to respond naturally, we're called to respond spiritually. So when I see David going back through the particulars of his trial, I understand that if I'm going to walk out a biblical spirituality, that that's part of what it means to live in this here and now. That's part of what it means to live in this already, not yet. That's part of the process of sanctification. But my prayer for my life is that I eventually get back to the vertical. That I eventually take all that reflection, all that concern, all that reality, and I literally place it at the altar, so to speak. That I cast that care on God, because First Peter tells us that God cares for us. David says his enemies, they're stirring up strife. They're lurking. They're watching. They're waiting. My words and my efforts, they're twisting, they're manipulating. When people, it's one thing to have a, 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 a general trial where it's a problem, maybe it's a physical malady, or maybe it's something on your job with regard to performance. But when people get involved, when you can point to somebody and say, they're the ones who are doing it, him, her, that does something to you, doesn't it? You don't have to tell me. Don't say nothing. Don't say nothing. You ain't going to say nothing here. But that does something to you, doesn't it? When people, have you ever been through a trial that, that people are actually laying out traps for you? You couldn't prove it if you had to, but you know that they're laying out those traps. Don't say amen too loud. This is what David is experiencing. David says, look, I know what they're doing. I saw sent them. I know they're coming. I know what the Philistines are thinking. I rode up in here with Goliath's sword. I don't know why. Here's what they're planning. They're planning. They're, they're scheming against my life. David turns back to God. And he says, are they going to 
Are they going to get away with this? And we ask that question. It might not be as poetic as that. It might be something like, you going to let them do this to me, God? You going to let them get away with this? We both see what's going on. Are they going to get away with this? The assumption being, as David has already reflected on the goodness and, and knowledge of God of his situation, the assumption being, no, but David poses this question because this is what he's going through as he endures the trial. You wonder, don't you? God, am I going to come out of this? You wonder, even as you live in between the reality of knowing that you are, but wondering whether you are, right? You, 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 God, I, am I going to, is this ever going to end? Am I going to make it through? Am I going to buckle under the pressure? God, is justice going to be served? Is your righteousness going to be upheld? God, I, what, what, is the, what is the outcome going to be? David poses these questions, this particular passage, and reminds us that not only is God concerned about these things, but he appeals to a particular goodness of God that necessitates a justice in God's time. See, that David doesn't take it upon himself to exact that justice, does he? He appeals to the goodness and the righteousness of God because he knows that God is holy, and if there is any evil that is existing, that God's holy necessitates that that evil be dealt with. He understands God's justice. He understands God's wrath, and he anticipates, because God is who he says he is, that God is going to do what ultimately God alone can do. Do you believe that? When you're going through a trial or a test, do you believe that God, who is, says it is what he is, that he's going to do what he says that he's going to do? David appeals to the righteousness and the goodness of God, knowing that his justice is going to come in due time. Look at verse, look at verse 8. Jehiel referenced this in his prayer. You have kept count of my tostings. You've put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? God knows everything that you're experiencing. Whatever it is you're going through this morning, God knows whatever it is that you are experiencing. Sometimes we have to remind ourselves of that. You know, you and I are never updating God on things that are going on in our lives. Sometimes we approach him like we are. Okay, God, I hope you're sitting down. God, you won't believe what she said today. He's like, I know what she said. God, you won't believe what he did to me today. I know what he did. Sometimes we think that God is experiencing situations as we do. One of the beautiful things about the God of the Bible and that what we learn from him in the Bible is that God is not just watching along as one who has started this world and pushed it and seeing how it rolls himself. I didn't know I was going to make that turn. But the God of the Bible is, is pictured as sovereign, as providential, that not only does he push the ball of the world forward, he orchestrates and he makes sure that the turns are what he wants the turns to be. So God's not watching an intersection, let's say in D.C., Oh, wait, stop for the stop sign. Whew. He almost messed up my plans. Now, but God is, is aware of what we're going through. God knows what you're going through better than you do. And that's something. You're like, nah. I mean, he knows, but not like I did. God knows exactly what you're going through. He knows it better than you do. Look at what David says here. Look, look back at verse 8. You've kept count of my tossings. You've put my tears in a bottle. The thing that has kept you up at night, God knows exactly what it is doing to your emotions, to you psychologically, to you physically, to you spiritually. He's kept count of those things. He, he has kept every tear that you've cried. He knows it. What kind of a God is this? that he would be mindful of you and I like that. And here's the amazing thing about God. He's doing all of that for you and the person sitting next to you. Because, see, we like to think in our finite minds that, okay, if God is this engaged and this involved in what I got going on, he must be shortchanging somebody else. 
Which is why within the community of faith, as we walk out this spirituality, if I see someone get delivered from their trial, what tends to happen is, as I'm going through my trial, I wonder if the deliverance train has passed me by. You wouldn't say that. You'll say, amen, praise the Lord, brother, praise the Lord, sister, been praying for you. God, what? Uh, what? I, I'm sure I was in front of them. I know I was in front of them. <laughs> they joined after I joined. But there is enough deliverance to go around. As he is working on the particulars of your situation and all the finite details that need to go into working out, whatever it is you're dealing with, he's doing the same thing simultaneously with every child of God in here. That's a God. And if you're in here today and you will not identify yourself as a child of God, if you don't identify as one who is of God, one who is known by God, one who knows God. Don't you want to be a part of that kind of providential care? The truth of the matter is that God is sovereign over your life, whether you recognize him or acknowledge him or not. But it's a totally thing, total different thing to be in a favorably, favorably disposed relationship with God. That I know that I have been reconciled to God through his son so that now I can know definitively that not just my temporal good, but my eternal good, God has it at heart. Look at what David says. You know all these things about my, my tears. You know all these things about my tossings. My enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know, verse 9. That God is for me. Perhaps one of the, the central truths of this passage upon which David's trust and faith rests is that God is for him. How do you know that, David? How do you know that God is for you? How do you come to know that? Look at the refrain in the next few verses. Look at verse 10. In God whose word I praise... In the Lord whose word I praise. I think that David knows that God is for him without a shadow of a doubt because David has a relationship with the word of God. David understands that there have been promises made to his people in the form of the covenants made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. David knows that he is existing in a lineage of a plan and a purpose that will ultimately culminate in the coming of the Messiah. David knows that he's in that lineage. Not only that, but David knows that he's been anointed king. Remember, God rejected Saul, anointed David king. So David knows that, that God has his back. Saul might not know this. The Philistines might not know this. But David knows that there was this secret anointing meeting that took place and that he's God's man. Do you know that? That you are God's and that God is for you. That's an amazing statement to say and know that the God of the Bible is for you. David knows this again because he is of the people of Israel and he knows that the people of Israel have been God's chosen people, that through this people that blessings to the entire world is going to come. David knows who he is in God. But not only does David exist off of the promises that God gave to his forefathers and the covenants that he gave to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob, but David also understands that God has a future plan and purpose for all that he is doing with Israel. So one of the things that is yet to come is that in 2 Samuel chapter 7, David is going to be given a covenantal promise himself. And David is going to be told in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that he's going to have a son and that his son is going to sit on his throne and his son is going to rule in his stead and his son is going to build a temple for God. That promise in 2 Samuel chapter 7 goes on to say that there is going to be an everlasting one who sits on the throne of David. And the Bible will come to, to let us know that that everlasting son of David is none other than Jesus himself. So the question that's raised to you and I, how can we know that God is for us? Well, to know that God is for us, to know and to know without a shadow of a doubt that God is for me, I have to come to know who he is. And I have to know, come to know what he has done in his son, Jesus Christ. 
What did he do? God sends his son, takes upon human flesh, lives a perfectly obedient and righteous life before the Father. In other words, Jesus lives the life that you and I don't live. Jesus lives the life that you and I couldn't live. Jesus lives a perfectly righteous life before the Father. He obeys him perfectly, completely. And then Jesus takes upon himself the penalty or the punishment for all of those who would ever believe because they could not live that kind of life. The punishment due to those who live a disobedient life before the Father, which is namely all of us, the punishment due to that type of person, Jesus takes upon himself. That my sin is now imputed or given over to Christ. He takes it as if it were his own. God the Father then treats the Son as if he lived my life. And when I place my faith in the Son, in his life, in his work, in his death, in his resurrection, the Father looks at me and treats me like I live Jesus' life. You get credit for a life that you didn't live. That's a scandal. That's what that is. You know that's what that is, right? Because when that kind of transaction takes place in any other sphere or area of our life, you'll be the first one to say, that ain't fair. You ever do something, you spend a lot of time doing it, and somebody should have been doing it with you, but they didn't do it with you. And then when it comes time to award the credit, to the doers of that thing, that person gets some of that credit? That don't feel good, does it? Nobody likes group work. When the people in the group aren't doing what they're supposed to do. And then when they show up to get the grade, everybody gets the grade for the performance of one person. That ain't right. That's exactly what happens in the gospel. That those who place their faith and trust in Jesus his perfect life gets credited to their account. When I was growing up in church, again, some of the church story, um, some of you may have heard this. We used to do things like big church anniversary celebrations. I know we just had one at ARC, but in comparison to the church anniversary celebration I'm talking about, we didn't celebrate. <laughs> one year, I was probably like 11 or 12 years old, Church I grew up in, right outside Chicago, First Baptist Church of Merrill's Park, Illinois. We decided we were going to do an all-white party. Yes. So I'm like 11 or 12. I'm like, cool. So we go to the suit store, and the suit store that we go to uh, doesn't have a lot of white suits for, for people my size. As a matter of fact, uh, we, we find one. Uh, there's one suit uh, that's white that's in between a row of uh, like black suits and dark blue suits, but it's a white suit right there that fits my size. I'm like, great, perfect. I show up to the all-white party fresh. Well, at least I think I am. I show up to the all-white party wearing my white suit that I picked that was right next to the dark blue suit, and I think it's white. Guess what? I'm not wearing white. I'm wearing cream. A hot cream, a cocoa butter cream. I don't recognize that I'm not wearing white until I actually get in the room with other people who are actually wearing white. You don't know and recognize how much you've offended God until your life is actually pitted up against the standard of his holiness. One, one theologian put it a long, a long time ago, he says, you don't truly understand the knowledge of yourself until you first understand the knowledge of God and his holiness. You show up and recognize that you're not just wearing cream, you're wearing black. This is a dilemma that all of humanity is in. And in David here, we see in his life and in the calling on his life and the future promises that he will be given, we see the future hope that we who now believe in this room have clung to, namely Jesus. David says, again, this is the God in whose word I praise and the Lord whose word I praise and God I trust, I shall not be afraid. 
This is the refrain. This is the thing that he repeats after he goes through the particulars of his problems, the particulars of his trial. He makes sure that he brings it back to God. And he expresses that decisive decision that he makes to not choose fear, but to choose God and trust in him. I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? The last section is interesting because one of the things you often see in the book of Psalms is that as people are walking through the problems that they have, one of the things that they will explicitly say is, God, when you deliver me, or God, when you come through, or God, when I come out of this, then I will return and I will celebrate and I will praise and I will worship. But only, they don't say it this way, but it comes off as, only after I am delivered, then I will do all of these things. David, in this particular psalm, seems to go another route. David, in the midst of his trials, in the midst of being chased by Saul, in the midst of being surrounded by the Philistines, David says, I still got to perform my vows to you, God. David says, I must perform my vows to you, O God. I will render, will render thanks offerings to you, for you have delivered my soul from death. Look at that confidence. David has such a, a trust and a confidence in God that he can, as it were, go ahead and, and praise him for the deliverance even right now. It's like, God, I, I see that. One of the, the hardest things to do, it actually just shows our, 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 the fickleness of our faith, is that when I'm going through a trial, I, my, my, my vision of the goodness of God, God forgive us, becomes clouded, doesn't it? When we're going through a trial or we're going through a test, we get in, in, in seasons or moods where it's hard to poke and prod us to worship God, isn't it? That we recognize that the state that we're in is not the state that we should be in, but the trial is such a burdensome pressure that we can't see. We can't, we can't worship God like we know that we ought to. David here says... As he is in captivity with Saul's man on the run, the Philistines around him, I got to worship. Now, what, what, on what grounds is David motivated to do that? Not just because of his confidence of what God will do, but because of what God has already done. Isn't that something? You ever go through something and, I mean, you go through something with tears and with trauma and with struggling and you come out of it? And you are just exuberant and praising and glorifying God. God, I never should have doubted you. I knew you were going to come through. Da, 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 da. The next trial hit. Totally forget about that thing that happened. I, I see myself doing that, and I'm disappointed in myself. I'm like, Stephen, you know that you were just in a trial, and God came through. Why are you still going through this stomach pain? That's the... That's the process that we go through. That's that spirituality lived out. That one of the things that we have to force ourselves to do is not just to have confidence in what God will do because we know that he's a God that, that keeps his word, but to remember what he's already done. We often treat God, or let me put it this way, I often treat God like his track record isn't that good with me. It's like, God, wait, look, God, you know you're about four out of five anyway. Well, that is not true at all. I wouldn't be standing here. Perhaps you wouldn't be sitting there. If you turned to your neighbor and told them everything that you've been through, that God has brought you through, they wouldn't believe it, would they? This is God's record with you. But David now, in his confidence of what God will do, he says, I have to perform these vows. I have to render him thanks offerings because I know, I know, look at the past tense. He has delivered my soul from death, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. This psalm, David is, is consulting with God, as it were, reflecting on who God is in the midst of his trial. He takes it straight to God. We often take it to other people first. You ever had someone that you were telling a problem to try to help you out in how to process through that thing, how to understand it, how to get out of it, and you discover that they're not helping you at all, but to say that 
they're not helping you would actually cause you to have to spend more energy in explaining that they're not helping you. So you just act like they're doing you good. Read the story of Job. This is how Job experiences that same situation with his friends. But you and I have a God that we can go to knowing that the remedy that he has to provide, whatever it is he's working on, whatever it is he's cooking up, I know that it is tailor-made for my situation. I don't have to test it. I don't have to ask anybody else about it. You know, my friend told me this strategy. What do you think about this strategy? No, I don't have to do that with God. I know that whatever God is thinking in regards to me in this situation, I know that it is for his glory and it is for my good. Many of us, when we deal with things in this life, or at least I do, one of the perspectives that I often try to take is a more global one, recognizing that the things I go through, though real and though trying, that there are, are just as much worse of, a th- worse of things going on in other parts of the world. David here is under threat of his life being taken away. Many of us, I dare say, don't know exactly what that feels like. But there are Christians in other parts of the world who do. That's not just a particular trial or test that they're going through that might have no bearing on the the extent of their actual lives, but this is what they actually are experiencing. And the blessing of being known by God and knowing God in Christ is that the, the question is not if he's going to deliver. We already know that he is. The question is, will that deliverance be experienced in this life, or will I enjoy the full fruits of it in the life to come? One of the blessings that this psalm, I think, points to is that ultimately, whether or not it's going to be all right right now, ultimately it's going to be all right. This is the testimony of the Christian. Ultimately, I will be delivered because the last enemy, namely death, has already been defeated in Christ. And so if that's the last enemy that has been defeated and I no longer have to worry about that, ultimately I'm good. The journey of faith is actually how having my emotions, having my psychology attain to that fact that ultimately whatever happens in this situation, I'm good. If you're not a Christian in here today, I encourage you to think about what it means to go through life's problems knowing that a God, this God, is for you, not just in a temporal sense, but in an eternal sense. I want to read this passage of scripture for our hearing as we close. It's in Romans chapter 8. I do want you to turn there because it's just that good. Romans, the eighth chapter. At the 31st verse, look at what Paul says. Romans chapter 8, verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? See the transaction that he's making there? If he gave you Jesus, how can you not trust him to give you whatever else you need for life and godliness? This is a question of how much you value Jesus. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus, the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed intercedes for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. This is Paul's testimony. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. David in this prayer, this psalm, looks forward to this kind of hope. You and I who are are Christians in this room, we look back recognizing that this work has already been done. 
how much more shall we be spurred on to exhibit the, tr- the faith and the trust that David does in this song? This ultimate view of this ultimate perspective of hope and trust is something that we all, all aspire to. I look at my life and I look at the things that I've been through and I see and know that I have a long way to go. But the encouraging thing is that I've gotten better. That every trial and every test that he brings me through is a testimony to his goodness and to him working on my faith. David will, of course, be delivered from this particular setting. He'll be delivered from Saul, be delivered from the Philistines. All the promises that God makes to David will come to pass. This is the God of the Bible. This is the God who he is. What he says, he does. Can you trust him? Do you want to trust him? Let's pray. Father, we, we see in this psalm a man who is surrounded. His life is in danger. He is in the midst of a trial, and yet we learn from your work in his life of what it looks like to place trust and hope in you in the midst of trials. Father, I don't know what everyone in here is going through today. Um, Oftentimes, we come in here with burdens on our hearts, and we don't speak them. But, Father, you know everything that is experienced here today on the hearts and minds of the image bearers who are sitting here. Father, you know exactly what it is. So, Father, I pray that you would meet all of us at that point of fear where it is creeping into our hearts and into our minds. Perhaps we are are wallowing in it. We are living in it. Perhaps we are, are just here afraid, wondering. Father, I pray that you would meet us at that point and remind us, one, that you exist. And that, Father, nothing that is experienced, nothing that we go through doesn't first go through your sovereign hands. Father, remind us that that you are overseeing all of these things, that you have orchestrated these things, that you have tailor-made them for your children to not only know and experience you, and not only for your glory, but for our good. So, Father, in that, in that sense, the trials that we go through as your people, that they serve us, that they, they spur us on to Christ-likeness, that in, in very ironic ways, you use these experiences to to make us look more like Jesus. Father, we pray that um, as we go through that work, painful as it may be, confusing as it may be sometimes, Father, I pray that you would give us faith, that you would give us this antidote to fear that is found in trusting you. Father, I pray for those who perhaps are here today who don't know what this faith is, what it looks like, who have not experienced the love that you have poured out through your son and the power of your spirit. Father, I pray that even the things that they may be going through, that you use that to point them to you. That, Father, that experience, that painful situation, that burden, that trial, that trauma, that test might be used of you to teach them that, one, you exist, and that, two, they are not sovereign over their own lives. They ultimately, we ultimately are not in control. But Father, you have graciously extended yourself to us and your son that you have now bridged the gap, as it were, between us and you, that the problems that we face, they're not all just external, but we have an internal problem, namely sin. And in Jesus Christ, you have remedied even that. Father, I pray that you would use trials and tests to remind us of that, that not only are you working on that thing, whatever it is, in your son you worked and you are working on us. And Father, for that we, we give you praise, we say thank you. Father, we, we worship you even now before we experience whatever the deliverance may be, as unknown as it may seem. Father, I pray that we use the things that you brought us through the track record that you have built up, not only in our lives, but in the lives of the people around us, the lives of your people in your word, Father, that we see your goodness and that that motivates us to give you praise even now as we await deliverance of whatever we're going through in this life, but the ultimate deliverance that awaits us when Christ returns. Father, I pray that we don't 
push pause on worship, but that we give you the praise and the honor and the glory that is due you even now because you're just that good. Father, help us to recognize, understand, realize that as we walk this thing out by the power of your spirit. Father, I pray that you would hear and answer this prayer for your glory and for our temporal and eternal good. And we ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen.